Carter. I'm LOL. And I'm Erin. And if you don't know three black bitches who love true crime, you do now. This is the I Ain't a Killer podcast. Hello. It's getting spooky up in this bitch. <laughs> it's Halloween month. Halloween. <laughs> October is just Halloween. They just need to rename it Halloween. Absolutely. The whole month, yeah. yeah. And what comes before October? September? That's just yeah. pre Halloween. It's just pre Halloween. <laughs> November is post Halloween. <laughs> right. <laughs> and pre Christmas. Right. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's the truth. And this October had a Friday the 13th, which is iconic. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And also a little creepy too. Yeah, I didn't go outside. Yeah. <laughs> I was outside all day. Literally all day. I loved it. Everybody at the tattoo parlor had on like all that golf shit. Somebody came in costume. Oh, they had black lipstick on. Okay. I was like, all right, I'm gonna be in the spirit. This was right. y'all dedicated wearing a Spider Man shirt. Like I didn't know it was doing a thing. <laughs> That's cute. That's very fun. It was a good time. Yeah, that does sound fun. Well, you could probably guess if you didn't already read the title of the episode or the description, which I doubt that you blew past both of those. But we're doing a Halloween episode. <laughs> I think we should just do Halloween episodes for the rest of the month. Like, not headline episodes, but like maybe next week do like yeah, a like a murder who yeah. did something on Halloween or a scammer who did something on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, this is plenty to choose from because there are a lot of crimes that happen on Halloween, apparently. Which I feel like, okay, maybe you can relate. As a kid, being raised in a cult uh, religion, I was always told that Halloween was like extra bad. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it was demonized, you can get possessed, but also that like people will murder you, like all mm-hmm. of that. I thought that was bullshit, the last part. Yeah. I don't know about possessions and shit, but I thought like that crime rates being higher on Halloween was just my mom being an ass. Yeah, they. Well, in the church that I grew up in, they were like, "Oh, it's the, it's the night where you know spirits. It's easier for spirits to roam the earth, and mm-hmm. like it's easier. Everything's like a portal, yeah. And where humans are way more susceptible to like possessions and stuff like that. Yeah. So you can't do trick or treat. You can't even even my friends who did like they knocked on people's doors and like read Bible verses and stuff. We can't uh-huh. do that. Like <laughs> I didn't know that was the thing. Yeah, you knock on my door on Halloween and read me a Bible verse. I'm not giving you shit. Like, <laughs> give me that candy back. Right. Give me that Twix bar. I'm calling the police. My first Halloween. <laughs> party was the one that we went to where you did a uh, Lola Bunny. That was like my that first time. First Halloween party. That was my first oh. Halloween party ever. Wow. wow. Yeah. So I very, think, very recently uh, I started dressing up. The reasons that y'all's parents gave, I don't think that that was it, but I do believe that more like crimes happen on holidays. Yeah. And then probably <clears throat> Halloween specifically. I just feel like people get like weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the energy is weird in the air. Yeah. Like it's just like I like they know it. people gonna be out. electrified. <laughs> I mean it is, it is electrifying, but like imagine if you had like murder on your mind. <laughs> you yeah, go outside true. and like yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to drink, other people be wanting to stab. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um so I have an excerpt from an article that I'm gonna read about the spikes in crime on Halloween. So, so surprising facts about Halloween crime spikes. This is from 2021. 
And it starts out saying that Halloween is one of the most common times of the year for crime. Um, here are some of the most surprising facts about Halloween crime spikes. Of the number of car accident fatalities on Halloween night, 40% are due to drinking and driving, which isn't surprising at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Property crime is the most common crime committed on Halloween, with 60% of property crimes involving theft. I also read an article about how egging has historically caused like a lot of murders. Like what? people because people egg people's cars and houses and stuff like that. People get really angry about that. Egg can like take the paint off your car. Yeah, it can fuck up your car. So like sure. people get shot and stabbed behind it. Mm. I've gone egging before, but that was a really long time. I was a kid. Um, Kids don't think yeah, far don't enough think in the future to no. think like, oh, this is gonna mess up their paint. Right. <laughs> Cause actual damage. I rather just TP my house. Like, just do that. Oh, mm-hmm. please don't do that. Because if it rains, and then I'm it gets all stuck and murder you. Actually, oh, I didn't even think about that. You can go ahead and egg my shit. <laughs> throw toilet paper all over my house and it rains I am going to be homicidal oh my god you know I didn't think about that your article next year (laughs) there are on average 17% more crime related claims on Halloween according to Travelers Insurance and a Northeastern University professor claims that violent crimes increase by as much as 50% on Halloween which is two times the daily average Um, this article attributes that increase in crime on Halloween to more alcohol and drug use Mm -hmm. makes sense Mm -hmm. it can get started earlier Mm. people are away from their home for longer periods of time and halloween is often known as a prank holiday Mm. Mm -hmm. all those make sense i also would throw in there and obviously i'm not a statistician or anything but i feel like because you can get away with wearing a costume Mm -hmm. like there's just so much more opportunity available to like go unnoticed i didn't think that um that was honestly i don't think they're the biggest it probably makes you feel like you know like how people have like twitter fingers because they're not in your face like having a costume probably makes people like have that same energy yeah Mm -hmm. like little kids get away with like doing more shit because they got the little ghost like outfits on (laughs) (laughs) no that's wild um okay well i will be in my house this halloween I already got plans. You're going out? Absolutely, I am. Okay, it's I'm my a- favorite holiday. <laughs> I'm like, come here and hand out candy. Okay. Well, I do want to hand out candy because Halloween's on an actual Tuesday. Yeah. But I'll still probably go out that night. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just come over to hand out candy and then leave. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to read a bunch of articles about Halloween crimes. Let's get into it. Yeah, alright, so this one is titled, What Was Johnny Frank Garrett More Afraid Of Than Being Executed for Nuns, Rape, and Murder? Um, I'm already scared. What? (laughs) (laughs) So, a Texas man on death row for the killing of a nun as a teenager feared the revelation of a dark personal secret even more than his impending execution. The fact that he'd been sexually abused as a child, according to a psychiatrist who believes the personal trauma he allegedly experienced resulted in a personality disorder. Johnny Frank Garrett was convicted for the rape and murder of seven, 76-year-old sister Tadea Benz at the St. Francis Convent in Amarillo, uh, Texas on Halloween in 1981. Killing a nun is wild. Honestly, let me let me pause right here. <laughs> when I first heard that, I thought about this article that I read where, like, apparently abuse, I mean, obviously we know this, but, like, abuse in nunneries is, like, wild. Yeah. Same way it is with, like, you know, like, orphanages and stuff like that. So, the fact that he was sexually abused, I'm not surprised by that. And then the fact that he killed her, I feel like he had some sort of personal connection to her or she mm-hmm. allowed something to happen to him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, I'm on the side of murderers or anything like that, but that's immediately where my mind went because yeah. he was so young. Um, 
He was 17 at the time of the murder. As forensic uh, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Dorothy Lewis said in the new HBO documentary, Crazy, Not Insane, Garrett was no quote-unquote arch criminal. He left fingerprints and knives all over the convent. Oh, he didn't even try. Yeah, he didn't even try. Like, he was just on a personal vendetta. Like, he he wasn't even organized. Yeah, just touching everything. He probably wanted to get out of his finger. My name is... And ID at the scene. Um, so he left fingerprints and knives all over the convent and was also seen running from the scene on the night of the murder. Damn. Still, Garrett maintained until 1992 execution, until his 1992 execution that he was innocent. Lewis interviewed and analyzed Garrett while doing a study of 14 juveniles who'd been sentenced to death. Lewis was one of the first forensic psychiatrists to publicly and at times aggressively put forth the theory that murderers were made and not born, and that they were products of abuse and brain damage rather than being vessels of inherent evil. Lewis also studied dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Uh, She became an expert defense witness during the trials of several high-profile accused killers, testifying uh, about her controversial belief that some killers are driven to murder by alternate personalities. At first, Lewis said that she believed that Garnett was schizophrenic, I'm sorry, Garrett was schizophrenic, uh, had brain damage and that he was a deeply sick and that he was deeply sick and psychotic. But she saw him in a television interview speaking about how his dead aunt Barbara spoke with him in his prison cell. Her view of him altered. Mm. She began to believe that he had multiple personalities. Lewis flew down to Texas to analyze the convicted killer in an attempt to spare him from execution. Texas was about to execute a crazy man for an act committed as a crazy boy, she wrote in her notes, which are included in the documentary. As a clemency hearing loomed, Lewis interviewed Garrett again. In these interviews included in the documentary, she spoke of his apparent alternate personality, uh, named Aaron Shockman, um, who said, <laughs> who he said formed after he was beaten up in fifth grade and after he was allegedly sexually abused in the creation of child pornography. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to like uh, do more quotes from the from the interview. Um, Roman Catholic bishops in Texas who opposed the death penalty tried to halt the execution, um, but they ended up siding with some of, um, and they ended up siding with some of Lewis's assessments. In the case of Johnny Frank Garrett, uh, we believe that the court should take into consideration not only the fact that he was a juvenile at the time, but in previous court proceedings that he had suffered brain suffered brain damage was abused as a child and was addicted to drugs they wrote in their 1992 statement that'll do it mm-hmm. perfect trifecta um he's now uh, diagnosed as chronically psychotic Lewis's theories on multiple personalities were often denounced and even ridiculed throughout her career during serial killer arthur shawcross's 1990 trial she was deeply she was deeply criticized after she testified that her belief was that the killer took on an alternate personality named quote unquote Bessie when he committed the murder. Renowned forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz, um, who consulted for both the FBI and the CIA claimed under oath during Shawcross's trial that he felt Lewis was inviting the accused to play various roles in crazy, not insane. Dietz called the concept of such personalities uh, a hoax. And that's the end of the article. When did that article come out? This one came out in 2020. Mm-hmm. And he was executed in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know. This is so weird that like a whole psychiatrist told y'all that, and then they did. They just like completely dismissed it instead yeah, of trying to like, no. accept that theory. I mean, I still I feel like in the early nineties, people yeah. still were like, "Oh, you go to therapy?" Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. DID. They did not believe yeah stuff have y'all seen the crowded room on apple tv uh-oh i seen the first episode it's and I, so good yeah so good with that. tom holland yeah. we gotta restart our shared note of recommendations because i can't keep up I know. I don't watch all the things but it's so good he has did and is involved in a crime and it it's really really good also it's like the ethical question of like whether or not he oh okay, yeah that's not good yeah it's really really good yeah i don't know it's weird because it's like i don't know if i was trying to solve why people do murder and that was one of the things that came up i would like be into like look into that like yeah. i wouldn't be like oh that's not real right you see what he just did right maybe it is right you know? Literally. so yeah oh that's so weird all right so the next story we're going to talk about is martha moxley and this is an article from cbs news that came out on june 2nd of 2022 so, in October of 1975, Martha Moxley was a popular 15-year-old 15 15 living with her parents, Dorothy and David, and her brother, John, in the private Greenwich... Greenwich? Greenwich? Greenwich, 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 Greenwich. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Connecticut neighborhood of Bellhaven. <laughs> to be fair, it is spelled like Greenwich. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's one of those like old English things. Right, like, like, right y'all. Um, it's an exclusive neighborhood where violent crime was uncommon. So another family living in Bellhaven was this Skackle family. Martha Moxley became friends with two of the Skackle boys, 15-year-old Michael and 17-year-old Tommy. The Skackles were cousins of the Kennedys through the marriage of Ethel Skackle and Robert F. Kennedy. Um, after the Kennedys. the Kennedys, yes, the ones. After their mother died of cancer, Rushton Skackle was the children's sole parent, the um, father. Martha Moxley recorded some of her interactions with the Skackles in her diary. In one entry, she wrote about 17-year-old Tommy, quote, went driving in Tom's car, and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap. He kept putting his hand on my knee. In another entry, she was particularly particularly concerned with Michael's behavior. The month before her death on September 19th, Martha wrote, quote, Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real asshole. I really have to stop going over there. On the night of October 30th, 1975, Martha Moxley went to the Skackle house to hang out. The next afternoon on Halloween, Martha Moxley's body was found under a tree near the back of the family's property. What? She had been attacked near her driveway and dragged to that spot by the tree. Investigators believe she was killed between 9.30 and 10 p.m. the night before. Martha had been beaten and stabbed with a Tony Penna golf club. Oh, my God. Police later found a matching golf club from the same set on the Skackle property. The golf, cu- the golf club she was struck with shattered from the force of the blows. That shattered a golf, golf club? club? <sighs> Are they made out of steel? Yes, or something. Oh, no. That was fucking personal. Yes. One of those boys, too. <laughs> Since Martha Moxley was last seen with the Skackles, police looked to them for accounts of what occurred that night. Looked to them for accounts, don't you mean look to them as suspects? This is what I'm saying, right? right? Interviewing them. It's so just... different how they write about people of like privilege. And yeah. yeah because cousins of the Kennedys, of course, you wouldn't ask them questions. Right. You did not take them in. Yeah, exactly. like, Michael told police that at 9.30 he left Martha and Tommy to go to his cousin Jimmy Tarrant's house and returned home around 11.30 p.m. and went straight to bed. 
Tommy was an initial suspect and reportedly the last person to see Martha Moxley alive. He told investigators she went home shortly after Michael left at 9.30. Ken Littleton, the Skakel family tutor, said Tommy was watching TV with him around 10 p.m. He noticed nothing unusual about Tommy. On January 22, 1976, Rushton, the um, father, the Skakel father, who had allowed police to search his home after the murder, ended his family's cooperation with investigators. No arrest was made in Martha Moxley's murder. Years passed and the case went cold. In 1995, a leaked document from an investigation ordered by Rushton Skakel pointed a finger at Michael for the first time. Michael told the investigators he didn't go straight to bed to bed after he returned home from his cousin's house. He said he went back out, climbed a tree outside of Martha Moxley's room, and masturbated. Reports had also begun to circulate that when he was attending a reform school back in 1978, Michael had confessed to killing Martha Moxley. Gregory Coleman was one student who who alleged Michael confessed to him, saying, quote, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. No Kennedy. First of all, you were like, married into that situation. Exactly. That's not last name. And that, for that to be the link. Oh, uh, Kennedy is crazy. Yeah. No. In 1998, State's Attorney Jonathan Benedict convened a one-person grand jury to assess the evidence in the case. A one-person grand jury. Yeah, I've never heard of that. <laughs> is that real? Maybe <laughs> white people. Yourself. I'm so confused. Is it the judge? Like the jury. I don't know. Uh, That's interesting. After an 18-month hearing, Michael Skakel was indicted for Martha Moxley's murder. Michael is charged with bludgeoning Martha Moxley to death in 1975. He surrenders to police in Greenwich. His trial will begin in May 2002. On August 30th, 2002, Michael Skakel was sentenced to 20 years to life for killing Martha Moxley. He was 41 years old. Um, Michael's legal team continued to fight, continued the fight to prove his innocence. And on August 24, 2003, Tony Bryant, a former classmate of Michael's, told Michael's attorney two of his friends who were visiting Bellhaven the night of Martha Moxley's murder had confessed to killing a girl. Armed with Tony Bryant's story, Michael Skakel's defense team requested a new trial. The judge denied the request. September 27, 2010, Michael Skakel's legal team filed a new appeal that argued his trial attorney, Mickey Sherman, failed to provide a competent defense. Skakel's new attorney, Hubert Santos, argued Sherman should have called witness Dennis Osorio, who could verify Michael was at his cousin, Jimmy Tarrant's house at the time investigators believed Martha was murdered. In 2013, a Connecticut judge ordered a new trial for Michael Skakel, ruling his original lawyer had not represented him effectively. After spending o- over 11 years behind bars, Michael was released from prison. Wow. After spending how long behind bars? 11 years. Oh, I thought it was longer than that. In May 4th, on May 4th of 2018... Um, the Connecticut Supreme Court reversed its 2016 decision and vacated Michael Skakel's conviction. On October 30th, 2020, 40, 45 years exactly after Martha Moxley's murder, the state of Connecticut announced Michael Skakel would not be re- retried. <coughs> and he is still free. And they do not know who killed Martha. And he was bragging about it? Yeah. yeah Talking about that's not that thing. Uh, I'm a Kennedy. So is that an admission that y'all know that Kennedy's had Marilyn Monroe killed? 
<laughs> now we get into it. Um, there's a really good episode of Crime Junkie on that story mm-hmm. that I listened to. On this one that she... Marcus Marcus Marcus. Marcus. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like whenever we read about white people going through the justice system, it's fascinating because I'm, it's always some shit that we never heard of. Mm-hmm. What's the one-person grand jury? Right. right. I've heard of like a judge being like the only person to just decide whether or not a person is guilty based off of indictment, but like, like a one, like it's, it's eleven other chairs next to you, and you don't. You just like, you're just making you just a decision. That don't sound right. Are y'all friends? Like, is it one of your peers? Like, do I don't you know. have any type of background that would make sense for you to be, or is it just like me? That's what there. I'm saying. Is it, I, I need to look into that. Questions I need answers. Never for niggas, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Alright, so I'm going to read an article that was published in 2018. It says, 35 years later, memories of notorious Hollywood Halloween Candyman murder remain vivid. You might think Mike Hinton's anger had ebbed in the three and a half decades since a young Harris County assistant direct, district attorney. He was assigned to prosecute Ronald Clark O'Brien, the father accused of poisoning his own son's Halloween candy. Or that in the 25 years since O'Brien was executed by the state of Texas, Hinton would prefer to let the past dissolve into receding memories. You'd be wrong, though. I never get tired of talking about that sorry-ass son of a bitch, said Hinton. Oh, damn. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> you know, get right to it. He still got smoke. Tell us how you really feel. Ever since he convinced the jury that O'Brien deliberately murdered eight-year-old Timothy by placing cyanide-laced pixie sticks into his trick-or-treat candy, the clarity of Hinton's recollections has not faded, but rather resolved into sharper focus. He remembers tiny details of the case, he said, just like it was last night. Such as when, in a near-empty courtroom during the trial, O'Brien later dubbed the Candyman, turned to him, and offered a tootsie roll. Please. I cannot imagine. And how on the night of O'Brien's execution, March 31st, 1984, Hinton returned to his childhood home in Amarillo. Not Amarillo again. No, damn. I'm never going there. <laughs> Took a boat out on a lake and lifted a Miller beer in silent celebration as he floated in the darkness. Flick the bright switch and vivid images still scroll in the front of Hinton's eyes. Particularly when late October rolls around, he sees the dead boy's slight body on the autopsy table. Damn, that's dark. Yeah. So young, he said, choking up. So young. Hinton is not the only one haunted by the memory of the crime that spooked generations of Halloween trick-or-treaters. Tom Campbell was a young news reporter for a Houston television station when he was assigned to cover the O'Brien trial. Today, as an anchorman for a television station in Augusta, Georgia, he has no better luck outrunning his memories. To this day, I don't observe Halloween, he said. Every year, as daylight fades on the final day of October, he has kept the porch light of his home off and refused to answer the door. When the station's annual party gets underway this year, he'll slip out as he always does. I can't do this, he'll tell himself. Ripples from the real-life tale of Halloween horror have touched millions more, though many people today may not realize it. In 1979, when Ronald O'Brien appealed his death sentence, Clyde DeWitt represented the government. O'Brien's lawyer was Marvin Teague, who two years later would be named a justice on the state's Court of Criminal Appeals. Teague died in 1991, but DeWitt vividly remembers the defender's opening statement. As you know, Teague began, my client was convicted of killing Halloween. Now an attorney in Los Angeles, DeWitt recalled that President for O'Brien's death sentence was complicated by his criminal record, or more accurately, his lack of one. This guy had never had anything but a parking ticket in his life. The fuck they gotta do anything. Right. <laughs> so how did the evidence support that he wasn't capable of rehabilitation? Most of the... He, okay. 
Most of those who learned the details of O'Brien's actions, however, agreed that his single transgression was more than sufficient to merit the ultimate punishment. Mm-hmm. I have seriously mixed emotions about the death penalty, DeWitt said, but if this doesn't justify the death penalty, there will never be a case that does. I just can't think of a more reprehensible crime. The events of that evening, 35 years ago tonight, later described in court documents and newspaper accounts, appeared straightforward, if appalling. After a dinner with friends, Ronald O'Brien, still dressed in the white optician's lab coat he wore at work, and neighbor Jim Bates headed out for an early evening of trick-or-treating. It was raining. With them were three children, a Bates boy and O'Brien's two children, Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth. At one of the homes they visited, no one answered the door. While the children ran ahead to the next house, Ronald O'Brien stayed behind. When he caught up to the group, he was holding several giant pixie sticks, colored paper straw stuffed with a powdered sweetener. You must have some rich neighbors, he told Bates. He gave each one to, he gave one to each of the children. Back home, Timothy asked to eat some of his candy before bed. He selected the pixie stick. When he had trouble pouring the powder into his mouth, his father rolled the straw between his palms to loosen it. Aww. After the pouring the candy into his mouth, Timmy complained that it tastes bitter. O'Brien gave him some Kool-Aid to wash the taste out. Timothy began vomiting almost immediately. Within minutes, he was convulsing. His father called an ambulance. Bill Lanier had been a detective at the Pasadena Police Department for less than a year when he caught the O'Brien case. It was his first murder investigation. Now retired and living in Louisiana, Lanier remembers the case vividly, beginning with his arrival at the hospital. Timothy was dead on arrival, so Lanier went to work interviewing members of the O'Brien family. Ronald O'Brien, who two weeks earlier had celebrated his 30th birthday, Damn, people really be having kids young. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, not 30. I can't imagine being, like, having a five or six year old right now. Like, you know, I'm irresponsible. Yeah, same. Um, they said he was a big guy and he talked soft, almost feminine. He had a real hangdog look. I don't know what that means. I don't know what He wasn't crying or bawling or anything, but there was no reason to believe he was involved. Lanier and several other Pasadena detectives quickly fanned out, recovering four other pixie sticks. One had been clutched in the hand of a child and fallen asleep after failing to open the straw, which was stapled shut. Others were recovered from the Bates children and Timothy's sister, who had also had yet to eat them. Lab tests showed the top two inches of each straw had been packed with a fatal dose of cyanide. Ooh. He tried to kill all them kids, oh even God. ones that weren't his. Over the next couple of days, police tried to pin down the house where O'Brien had received the poison candy. O'Brien's recollections were oddly imprecise. At first, he kept saying, I don't know what home, I don't know what street. Lanier said, but they only trick-or-treated on two streets. Then he said he didn't see the person. All I could see was an arm. After methodically walking up and down the neighborhood several times with the cops, O'Brien finally directed them to a house. It was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin, who O'Brien said was the person that gave him the deadly candy. Bad choice, Hinton said in a recent interview. It turned out Melvin hadn't gotten home until nearly 11 on Halloween. Mm-hmm. He had an ironclad alibi, Lanier said. He was a shift worker, a supervisor at Hobby Airport. He had more than 200 people that could vouch for him. Like, 200? Really, really chose the wrong person. That's what I'm saying. Not even somebody that was at home. That's what I'm saying. Somebody who was like, hanging out with somebody. Right. 200 people, that's wild. <laughs> they was all like, nah, not my guy. Right. Um, meanwhile, the detectives were uncovering more trouble information about O'Brien. He had recently sold the family's home to cover mountain debts. He still owed money to numerous creditors. He'd also purchased a $20,000 life insurance policy on each of his children a month earlier. In addition to policies... Like 20000 In addition to policies he acquired for them the previous January. Oh, okay. 
Halloween fell on a Thursday, on Friday at 9 a.m., just hours after his son's death. Ronald had called to inquire about collecting on the policies. Wow. His body isn't even cold. Wow. Them, they be giving themselves away so easy. Like, huh? You took out life insurance policies? That's the dead giveaway right there. The more questions the police asked, the more suspicion fell on O'Brien. But summer before, he had called an acquaintance who worked for a chemical company and asked questions about cyanide, oh, including God. what constituted a fatal human dose. Just before <laughs> Halloween, he entered a Houston chemical outlet and asked about buying some of the poison, even after he learned that the smallest package available was five pounds. Even after being confronted with the growing evidence against him, he never confessed. He came close. I got him right on the line. And interrogation typically goes through stages. First, there's denial. Then you can see the subject give up. With O'Brien, I've seen that give up. We've been in the interview room for a while, and he slumped and started nodding his head like he's agreeing with me. I said, now's the time to tell me. And he nodded some more. So I waited a couple of minutes. When he didn't say anything, I said, Ronald, tell me. And he said, tell you what. And the moment was gone. He never got there. I'm going to end it there because it's still pretty long, but wow. Wow. There's so much, like, those little kids could have still had a full fucking life. Well, only Timothy died. Only who? Timothy, an eight-year-old. Okay. Yeah. It makes me feel like when I eventually have children and take them trick-or-treating, like, I'm going to have to buy candy and then just switch their shit out. (sighs) So I was reading something else that said that this was like the story that started like the, all the the drugs here. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, you can just <laughs> I'll yeah. just say it. You can just take like a needle and stick yeah. it in a piece of candy. But why would you want to do that? I mean, there is that story about that person who I don't know if y'all heard of this, but like went into like all these drugstores and like did that but with like Tylenol yeah I heard about that yeah you know so I guess some people just do like to create chaos chaos creating chaos yeah but it's like what are the like that's that mass paranoia that you that we all have to have in order to make sure something like that doesn't happen yeah that's so fucked up because if somebody were to do that with candy or Tylenol or anything we will all have to stop shopping in the pharmacies go I don't know bumblefuck yeah. nowhere to get our painkillers it's just so much yeah even with the candy like why the fuck would you want to do that like to a to kid well I mean kids. obviously he did that to his own kids for money for purposes money, yeah but still but he gave it to the other people too. yeah so what was that about I think he was just trying to cover his tracks make it yeah. look like yeah. it was really a there's a maniac on the loose. Right. And then it's like, it's put a mirror now he has right 20, 200 best friends. Yeah. So, <laughs> 200, find someone wow. else. No. 200 witnesses. <laughs> on camera, friends, co workers, car punch, all that. <laughs> you chose the wrong person. Goodness. The worst. You really could have just been like, I don't remember. Like, I don't remember. Like, well, you tried to say that, but they were like, you only trick or treated on two streets. And he was with that other guy. Yeah. Yeah. So they were like, but who remembers where they got specific pieces of candy from? True. That's what I'm saying. Like, if he was really, I don't know. The only time so I remember that, I mean, y'all didn't trick or treat as kids, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were some houses that would give the big candy bars. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. remember those shit. And I think that's what <laughs> they were trying to get across because he even made a note of the fact that they had the big pixie sticks. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, your neighbors must be rich. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Damn, no. You'd be like, you can go trick or treat, but don't get nothing. We like, we got, we got candy at home, right? <laughs> Just hold your bag out, and that's. Uh, I don't know. I don't believe in capital punishment um, under this justice system, but what that guy said 
made sense to me. Yeah. Uh, if there ever was a case where it made sense, mm-hmm. because poisoning your own eight year old, giving them Kool Aid to wash it down, and then calling the ambulance yourself is crazy. And then acting like you don't know what's going on when they say it's bitter. And then calling the insurance company. And be like, yeah, so what's up with that payout? Like, my kid died. Like, that's so I, and that's hockey why I don't think like I don't know when it's a family member that's like in your immediate family you shouldn't be able to collect for a certain amount of time yeah. after them die unless it's like you're a parent and I don't know you you were like their caretaker or something like that some stuff like that but like people and their kids like collecting a life insurance yeah. policy yeah. especially like, if, it, if it, there's like any suspicion mm-hmm. yeah it. no especially like, if there's suspicion yeah, yeah oh hang dog is a dejected or guilty appearance. <laughs> Shame faced. Adding that so, to um, interesting. So somebody who like really okay. fucking looks guilty. All right, y'all. We'll be right back after we pay some bills. Are you a huge cunt? Us too. Wait, can we even say cunt? Of course. It's empowering these days. Cunt, 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 cunt. I'm Ange Ballastone, a.k.a. the drag queen, Fat Girl Gina. And I'm Mike Fails, just a normal gay guy, I guess. And we're the hosts of The Big Cunty Couch, a gorgeous new talk show podcast where we invite queers and peers to sit, bitch, and be fierce on a huge-ass couch while we gab about all things gay. So come get cozy and cunty with us. We're pan for platforms, so find us anywhere online and get listening, sweetie. Or watching. Or both. Otherwise, why the hell am I in full drag? And we'll see you on The Big Cunty... Oh, wait. I thought we were going to say that together. No. On <laughs> The big cutty couch. Mwah. Mm. Well, I never I heard that. That makes sense, though. Like when you come home and your dog's turning out the trash and you look mm. at them. Yeah. The way they be looking. Yeah. So this one is called Woman Killed Over Halloween Candy. This article is from November 6, 2011. A man became so enraged over a missing bag of Halloween candy that he plunged a knife into a woman multiple times, according to police. He was arrested in the Halloween night stabbing and charges are expected to be upgraded after she died Saturday night. Maria Adams, age 49, was stabbed multiple times at 7150 South Winchester Avenue on Halloween, according to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. She died Saturday at Stroger Hospital. Her acquaintance, Liddell Peoples, 55, these people sound black. <laughs> Liddell. Liddell Peoples, that definitely sounds black, um, of the Winchester address, was sh- arrested shortly after the stabbing on Halloween. Okay, never mind. I don't know. Liddell, I, I might be reading it wrong. Liddell? You're reading it in a black way, Liddell? but it could be. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're no, reading I mean, it in a black way. I'm just going to put it um, while I'm ahead. <laughs> Was arrested shortly. Oh, he's black. Okay. Was arrested shortly after the stabbing on Halloween. He's accused of attacking Adams and was charged with attempted murder and aggravated domestic battery, according to police news affairs. Police news affairs officer John Mirabelli. A fight stemmed from a missing bag of candy. At some point in the brawl, a plate was thrown and people suffered a cut over his eye, said the officer. And the fight continued to escalate until people stabbed Adams. He was booked in the Cook County Jail on Thursday where a judge ordered him uh, be, to be held on $2 million bond, according to the Cook County Sheriff's offices. $2 uh, million uh, is crazy. What? And I mean, I somebody. I mean, true, but why don't they just... Bond. I feel like at that point, just say you don't you don't get bond. Just doesn't exactly. work. Because that's insulting. Yeah. $2 million? You know he's not going to be able to pay that. <laughs> right. He stabbed somebody over candy. He's not the type of person... To, no. <laughs> 
and autopsy is expected later Sunday and charges are expected to be upgraded and then that was that was the end of the article Dude, I wonder girl, if he was like on drugs or something cause that, that's just be. like yeah there's no reason I mean I'm not saying rich people don't do no heinous ass crimes but I feel like fucking up your bag in that way like stabbing somebody yeah. on Halloween that's definitely not something somebody who can pay two million dollars to get out of prison yeah. would do I don't think yeah um, it sounds like maybe he was like on drugs or something it had to be yeah because I don't know I don't know. But I also feel like we live in a time now. Well, I'm not saying that this wasn't a time, uh, this wasn't a thing then, but I feel like we live in a time now where it's like, getting into an argument with a man is like a death sentence. Mm-hmm. It's pretty scary. Like, yeah. you know, I feel like we kind of, well, maybe I'm in a social media bubble, but like, from posts that I've seen to like conversations that I've had with people in real life, it's like, okay, you got it. Yeah, no, yeah. you definitely got it. And so, even going back to the past and seeing stuff like this, it's like, you get into an argument with a man over a missing bag of candy. Whether he's on, whether he was on drugs or not and it was just him being like aggressive or anything like that like it's sad that shit <laughs> it's sad that that shit that you have to consider when just having a normal disagreement with somebody you really right. gotta be like oh okay this person might be on some other shit like let me not you know? right cause that's a valid ass argument like maybe he stole the candy from her or maybe I don't know he thought he had more candy he thought she took it I'm not sure exactly what that what they got going on but you should be able to argue about that and not have to worry it's about candy. losing your fucking life it's candy yeah. it's candy um. oh my goodness alright this next story was published by Oxygen and it's titled Ohio Man Targets His Family in Real Life Horror Story on Halloween it was published on October 7th 2022 Mm. Halloween is sometimes a holiday for pranks so it made sense that on Sunday October 21st 2010 when 16 year old Devin Griffin made a horrifying discovery at his home in Oak Harbor Ohio he initially thought he'd been a victim of a joke but what he witnessed was tragically real Devin found the bodies of his murdered mother and stepfather, Susan and William Lisk, in their bedroom. His older brother, Derek, age 23, was discovered dead by police in his upstairs bedroom with a blunt force trauma wound to his head. Quote, this was the most disturbing murder scene I've seen over the course of my career. Mark Mulligan, prosecutor of Ottawa County, told Homicide for the Holidays, um, a show on oxygen. I can still see it to this day. Detectives started the investigation by piecing together information about events preceding the Halloween discovery of the bodies. Bill and his 24-year-old son, William, who was known as BJ, had spent the day before hunting. Then, during the evening, the fun-loving Lisks had a celebratory get-together with a neighbor that broke up around midnight. On Halloween morning, Susan's sister-in-law, Lori Morse, grew concerned when Derek didn't show up to do some work for her husband. Calls to Derek and Susan went unanswered, so she reached out to Devin. He had spent the night at his father's house and had a church concert on, the, on Sunday morning. So, just for clarity, the um, Bill is the stepfather. Okay. So, he was at a different house. He was at his biological father's house. So, when Devin got home, he had played video games before he eventually came face-to-face with his slain parents. A terrified and hysterical Devin then contacted his aunt, Lori, who called 911. It looked like Bill had been shot four or five times, officials said. Sue, Sue was shot three times with a defensive wound to her hand. Blood splatter covered the walls. This was a real live horror story taking place on Halloween. I cannot imagine. Can you imagine walking into any any place 
and it is a literal murder scene. Mm-mm. I just. What I would never, do? I would never be right again. No, yeah. stuff like that. I understand why people just disappear off the face of the earth, right. just go off the grid, and just don't ever speak to anybody ever again, or do something else. Come I feel like my brain would break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, I feel like I would have a difficult time in the future, like distinguishing b- between reality, yeah, and, like yeah, you know, like movies and shit. Because yeah. I don't know that I would ever like fully believe that it was real, but yeah. then also like obviously it happened, especially on yeah. Halloween. Like that just is too yeah it sounds too it sounds like written yeah somebody wrote that yeah like i'm absolutely i've lost my mind it happened yeah it's here (laughs) the day has come the day has come (laughs) investigators had a theory as to why two different murder weapons a blunt object and a gun were used Mm. they believed Derek was killed first the deadly blows by what they suspected was a hammer god i fucking hate to murder by hammer yeah same i hate it they did that in red mirror what is it yeah oh so the deadly blows by what they suspected was a hammer wouldn't awaken Bill and Susan. No shell casings were found at the scene. The killer took the time to pick them up to cover his tracks. There were no signs of forced entry or a robbery. A neighbor told investigators that she'd heard banging, which may have been gunshots around 6.30 a.m. on Sunday. Investigators carefully searched the list home and property. On a dock near a pond on the sprawling spread, they found a muddy footprint. Police believe that the killer may have walked to the end of the dock and tossed the murder weapons into the water. The pond was drained, but no weapons were found. Police began their questioning with Devin. He said he had come come home after being at his dad's, ran in, got his choir gear, and headed to the concert. He returned home and eventually found the bodies. He was ultimately cleared as a suspect. (laughs) I'm like, wait. (laughs) That's all the questions y'all asked? What did you do? Okay, yeah. You inquired? Okay. Devin said BJ was in the driveway at his house when he arrived there before the church concert. He told BJ, who appeared to be loading something into his dad's white truck, he'd be back shortly. Police concentrated their efforts on locating BJ, whose relationship with his stepmom, Susan, was alarmingly strained. So BJ is Bill's biological son. Okay. okay. And um, Devin is Sue's biological son. Okay. So they're step-siblings. Um, police concentrated their efforts on locating BJ, whose relationship with his stepmom, Susan, was alarmingly strained. Witnesses told officials that there was a long, simmering tension between the two ever since she married his father. Over time, the arguments turned physical. BJ and Susan had had some altercation, according to the detectives. She was accosted by him on several occasions. They did not get along whatsoever. Mm. BJ was described as a troubled person who was dealing with some obvious mental illness, according to Homicide for the Holidays. He had a history of turning combative and violent, and drinking alcohol could exacerbate those behaviors. Things had gotten so out of hand. With a hammer Shoot. Things had gotten so out of hand that BJ wasn't allowed to live in his father's house. Hmm. Police tracked down BJ at a family hunting cabin in Carroll County. The cabin and surrounding property were searched for possible murder weapons. We knew we were looking for at least one blunt force object. We believed at that time it was a hammer. And then we're looking for a small caliber gun. Critical evidence, including blood and a 22 caliber rifle, were found in the white truck. Investigators searched the list home, soon found a bloody hammer in a closet. Wow. That is a fucking yeah, evidence gold mine. You didn't even have time to, like, lift up the floorboard or something. Right. Try. You picked up the bullets, but you Bury threw it? the hammer in the Throw closet. It? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
BJ Lisk was charged with murder. Evidence confirmed that DNA from BJ's father, stepmother, and stepbrother were on his clothing. In a jailhouse phone conversation with BJ, his mother asked him about the crime. She said, quote, BJ, how could you? And he goes, I wasn't in my right mind. And all of a sudden he goes, Mom, I can't talk about this anymore. <laughs> After that last phone call with his mother, BJ changed his plea to guilty. BJ Lisk received three life sentences without parole. In 2015, he died by suicide while behind bars. And that is that. Because, of course, he did. Right. I was going to say, what a fucking coward. <laughs> oh, child. What do you mean you weren't in your right mind? What would it... What? With a hammer, he couldn't have been in his right mind though, because the hammer is wild. yeah, no, yeah, definitely wasn't. Definitely wasn't. But and and to no excuse, but he's getting violent to the point of assaulting his stepmother. Like at some point, y'all gotta right step in because yeah. y'all said there was a history of like conflict. Yeah, like, yeah. and they failed to. Yeah, yeah. That's kind. Of, that kind of reminds me of the act, like how we were talking about mm-hmm. how. Uh, you remember, like, with Gypsy Rose mm-hmm. or whatever? Mommy Dead and Dare. Yes. She's, wait, did she get out? She, is she, I think she'll be out next year. year or ne- uh, I don't know. What's I saw that? her uh, on Twitter or something. They were talking about her getting out on parole. But whenever I hear about strained parent relationships and then I, like, I hear that, like, they didn't just run away mm-hmm. or they didn't, you know, to, I, I don't know, go find something else to do or something like that. It's like, no, let me stay and kill my parent. I, she gets out December 28th. Wow. wow. Oh my God. Prepare for the fucking media frenzy that's about to be. I'm kind of excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so interested to hear what she has to say like, when she gets out or whatever. Because that's such Too. a fucked up, like, complicated case. Like, yeah. That case fascinates me. Yeah, no. Munchhouse's by proxy is fascinating, yeah. too. Just mm-hmm. like the fact that, you know, parents do that to so that they can have somebody to care for and mm-hmm. yeah, just, they're so lonely yeah that's so like that's wild to me but mm-hmm. yeah but i always think about like okay she was i mean yeah the events in the movie were fictional but like she had points where people were like you can just you know do this thing or whatever like even the coke test i'm not sure if that was real but did you watch the documentary no i didn't watch the documentary you have to watch yeah. the documentary. okay Mommy Daddy is on hbo it is so good. Yeah, she was like, drink this Coke and see if you're allergic to it. And she yeah. was like, no, I love my mom. And then it's like, you killed it. And that's that's such a weird, like, yeah. the parent-child dynamic in that, like, you mm-hmm. w- are willing to kill them, but you're not willing to, like, yeah. betray them by testing yourself for allergies. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, same thing well, yeah, same thing with this one. Like, he had a strange relationship with her, and it's just like, leave. Yeah. But, like, what is it that causes kids to not leave Yeah. in that, like, abusive relationship? I'm interested to see that. So, teen gets maximum sentence for killing girls' girls' parents. This is from the LA Times, and it was published in 2014. Even as she pleaded for a sentence that would let her live in sunshine again, a 17-year-old convicted of murdering her parents expressed little remorse other than admitting to mistakes. Cynthia Alvarez said she'd been a victim of abuse at the hands of her mother and stepfather. Allegations disputed by prosecutors and family and friends of the deceased. Live life in my shoes, Alvarez told a Compton courtroom Friday. If it was your child being raped, I bet you'd say to hell with the law. Oh, my God. Period. And what? Yeah. 
Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Ricardo R. Ocampo, however, found that the October 2011 playings committed by Alvarez and her boyfriend Giovanni Gallardo, 18, were vicious and sophisticated attacks. Saying that he still hadn't seen remorse, Ocampo ruled that the maximum sentences of life in prison should be imposed. Alvarez would be eligible for parole after 51 years. Gallardo would not be eligible because of a law mandating tougher sentences for people older than 16 convicted of murder. A recent state law, however, allows for a sentence reduction after 15 years served. The teenagers troubled by learning disabilities latched onto each other at a Compton High School in 2010. The boy complained of peers bullying him. The girl accused her mother of verbal and physical abuse and her stepfather of sexual abuse. She later said that Gallardo threatened her too, but she was too scared to tell anyone. The boy didn't like that her parents disapproved of the teenager's relationship. Shortly before Halloween 2011, the bound and decomposing bodies of the girl's parents were found partially covered by a cloth in a shallow grave. In separate trials, jurors convicted both teenagers who were tried as adults. Gallardo was convicted of strangling Alvarez's mother, Gloria Villalta, Gloria Villalta, 58, and beating her stepfather, Jose Lara, 51, with a baseball bat and stabbing him several times with a kitchen knife. Prosecutors alleged that the attacks were part of a planned ambush. Alvarez told jurors that they left her mother's body in a car for several days after it didn't fit into a grave of Lara. Uh. Then they drove the car to a shop for Halloween supplies for a party in the same home where the murders occurred. What? Oh no, this is giving so many different stories oh, like combined. God. Yes. This Remember that one that you niche. did? What did yes. you do it? The one with the house party where the yeah. bodies were in the bedroom? Yeah. yeah. Fuck. Um, they traded in the victim's jewelry. I'm sorry, they left the body in the car. I can't get over that. Yeah, I'm, I'm like... For several days? Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Didn't uh-huh. didn't, they, uh, didn't the same thing happen with Gypsy Rose's mom? Like, they left they leave her, her. They turned the AC on like 50 and left her for like a week, right? I think they just left her in the house and dipped to his parents' place. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but to, to leave her in there for several days and then go back after rigor mortis is set in, she's been sitting outside and... They in Texas, I think. First of all, I'm never going to Texas again. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, That's the end of that. That's what I'm saying. But wow. Um, they traded in the victim's joy for, for, and car parts for cash. Psychologists hired by the teenagers' public defenders testified Friday that the two had already begun realizing the gravity of their actions and that prison could be dangerous given their learning difficulties. Well, there's a lot of people with disabilities in prison, so we should just talk about how prison isn't set up for anybody. Yeah, and praise on people with disabilities. Right. Alvarez's psychologist said the teenager suffered from a type of PTSD because of the alleged abuse, believing in a fantasy that life would be great without her parents and that the two teenagers could support themselves. Deborah S. Miura, a psychologist for Galario, said he was a follower in most ways, who was borderline mentally... She's the word retarded. I don't know. I guess it makes sense here. Yeah. Was she is she medically calling him that? Yeah. Or is like yeah. Um she said Gerlotter had dreamed of being an auto mechanic, something he couldn't have achieved through a rote learning in a structured environment. There is an individual in there, not a cold, callous person, she said. During Friday's hearing, Alvarez barely budged in her seat. She bowed her head for much of the day-long hearing, shedding tears when others spoke of her alleged abuse. Alvarez, reading from a written statement, told the court that she was scared of doing life. I just need to remember my past and my past, she said. 
And he said the stepfather and the stepfather's sister, speaking to the judge, denied the abuse allegations. In a fiery speech delivered in Spanish, the sister Ruth Laura said Alvarez had proved to be bad and unnoble. It's sad that she planned this killing of people who wanted to stop her from getting into bad company like this guy, Laura said. Gallardo did not speak, but his parents did. His father, George, said his son had been sick for a long time. His mother, Alicia, told the judge that as she gave the teenagers a ride in a car days after the murder, she overheard Alvarez telling her son to incriminate himself. I know as a mom he didn't do it, she said. That's the end of the article. I'm confused about how sexual assault plays into this. Who was sexual assaulted? So the daughter... Um, whose last name is Alvarez. Her first name is Cynthia. The daughter, 17, has a boyfriend who's 18. Okay. And the, I guess what this article is implying is that she convinced him to help her kill her parents Mm -hmm. because her mom was verbally abusing her, physically abusing her, and her stepfather was um, sexually assaulted. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And he was also upset with them because they didn't want the two of them to be together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if that is the true story behind like what or did she ever did she ever get on the stand and say that that's the true story behind like why she, what her motivation behind killing him or is, is that strictly what she told him or no, is that what just what the quote is from the article so live life in my shoes Alvarez sort of come to the courtroom Friday if it was your child being right I bet you say to hell with the law yeah so okay. she's saying that like I did do this yeah but it was because of this reason because even her leaving her mom in that car for days it just feels so Charles in the wheelchair, like diary of my black woman kind of deal. Mm, yeah, like, it's just like you really wanted to punish them in a very specific way, and and I don't know, just live out that moment where you truly don't give a fuck about them. Yeah, that's what you get, kind of kind of deal. That's what vibe that gave me. Yeah. Um. Wow. That was so many turns. Mm-hmm. Damn. Okay. I mean, I believe her for sure. No, definitely. Doesn't sound like the court did, but... Yeah. And it sucks when you kind of, like, be on the side of the person who did this heinous thing, because it's like... Yeah. What would you do if that was you? Um, Maybe not the exact same thing, but, like, definitely something along those lines. All right, so this one is called The Trick or Treat Murder. This is an article from August 31st. Man, I said August 31st. Mm-hmm. October 31st, 2018 from Deranged LA Crimes. Uh, it says, We expect goblins, ghosts, and ghouls to run the streets on All Hallows Eve, but what we don't expect is murder. October 31st, 1957 was a school night. Kids scored their Butterfinger bars and homemade caramel apples and were home in bed by a decent hour. 35-year-old Peter Fabiano, his wife Betty, and teenage daughter Judy Solomon had just retired for the night. Peter's stepson, Richard Solomon, had left earlier to return to his Navy base in San Diego. The family wasn't expecting any callers when the doorbang, uh, doorbell rang shortly after 11 p.m. Peter got out of bed and went to the door. Betty heard him say yes, and then he said, isn't it a little late for this? She heard but didn't recognize two other adult voices. One sounded masculine, and the other one sounded like a man impersonating a woman. Then Betty heard a noise that sounded like a pop. The noise brought her and Judy out of bed in a hurry, and they ran to the front door where they found Peter lying on his back just inside the front door. 
Judy ran two doors down to Bud Alpert's home. Judy knew Bud was a member of the Los Angeles Police Department assigned to the Valley Division. She banged on the door until Bud answered. Bud contacted Valley Division and several other officers arrived in minutes to the scene of the shooting. They transported Peter to Sun Valley Receiving Hospital where he succumbed to massive bleeding from the gunshot wound. A 15-year-old boy witnessed a car leave the neighborhood at a high rate of speed around the time of the shooting. He had no other information for the police. Detectives found no spent shells, nor did they find evidence that the shooting was part of an attempted robbery. Betty told them she and Peter married in 1955. Together, they ran two successfully uh, two successful beauty shops, and as far as she knew, he had no enemies. Peter's murder resembled a gangland hit, so the police dug into his background, and Peter had a minor record for bookmaking in 1948, nothing that connected him to L.A.'s underworld. Detectives interviewed friends and relatives of the deceased, but they offered nothing in the way of they offered nothing in the way of suspects. A week later, a confidential tip led detectives to a bizarre murder plot. Goldine Pizer, Pizer, a 43-year-old widow, admitted to the slaying when arrested at her Hollywood home. Goldine told LAPD Detective Sergeants Charles Stewart and Pat Kelly, it's a relief to get it off my mind. She said a friend of hers, 40-year-old um, Joan Rabble, Rebel, a former employee of one of Fabiano's beauty shops, talked, to her, talked her into committing the crime. Friends for four years... <laughs> I'm I'm confused. I hope I'm reading this right. Talked her into killing someone. Yeah, talked her into killing at a beauty shop. Okay. Um, that's so that escalated real fast. Friends for four years, Goldine and Joan planned the murder for three months. All we talked about was Peter Fabiano. Joan described the victim as a vile, evil man, one who destroyed all of the people who destroyed all of the people about him. I developed a deep hatred for him. On September 21st, Goldine purchased a 38 special from a gun shop in Pasadena. She told the man behind the counter that she needed a weapon for quote-unquote home protection. A few days later, Joan drove Goldine back to the shop where they picked up the gun with two bullets in it. Joan paid for the gun, but Goldine kept it until Halloween night when Joan picked her up in a borrowed car. Joan came over to the house with some clothing, blue jeans, khaki jackets, hats, eye masks, makeup, and red gloves. Please. We dressed up, got in the car, and drove to Fabiano's home around 9 p.m. Like, this is giving speed racer the way that I'm, like, imagining it in my mind, especially with the red gloves. The women waited until the lights went out. Goldine said, I rang once, and then nothing happened, so I rang again. She brought, she brought the gun up with both hands and fired. I ran to the car and Joan drove to Mrs. Barrett's home. Goldine said Joan borrowed Margaret Barrett's car to commit the murder. So Borrowing a car to commit a crime is really heinous. Putting your friend at, at risk. <laughs> and she just blabbing away. Like, like she's she telling everything. <laughs> she told them what they was wearing she told them who car she borrowed right where they got the guns we talked at the to check them out we talked at the beauty shop about killing him for three months you can just go ask so and so (laughs) honestly yeah they overheard us and they was in on the conversation too and this is why you don't fucking do crime with people bro like this is literally why you don't do crime do your crime solo do it solo or don't do it just just fantasize about it (laughs) we left the car on the street separated and walked to our homes Joan said forget you ever saw me the county grand jury returned indictments against Goldine and Joan for Peter's murder. Goldine wept as she told the grand jury of the weird killing. She explained that Joan incited her to commit the murder of a man she didn't know by picturing the victim as a quote-unquote symbol of evil. But they never talk about what he did. Joan declined to testify. 
Rather than face trial on March 11th, 1958, Goldine and Joan pled guilty to a second-degree murder and were sentenced to five years to life in prison. That's such a wide range of years. What the fuck is this going is on? Serious. What the fuck is going five on? Five to life? Yes. <laughs> what? I understand 25 to life, but five to life? It's got to be a typo. Five is a degree. Like, that... What? <laughs> What about a motive? Why did Joan want Peter to die? Simple. Peter stood in the way of Joan's plan to get much, much closer to Betty. Much, much? Hmm? Oh, uh, she was death. trying to get with the wife? That's what I'm saying. Before his death, Peter asked Betty to end her friendship with Joan, which she did. The newspapers alluded to the motive. Reports described Joan as jealous of Fabiano's relationship. Uh, 1957 readers did not need to have it spelled out for them. They understood the subtext. Homosexuality was illegal in California, which may be why Joan accepted the plea deal. A doctor who examined Goldine characterized her as a passive person who became a quote-unquote handy tool or putty in the hands of Mrs. Rebell. The same doctor described Joan as a schizoid. I don't know when Goldine and Joan left prison, but I hope they spend a long time behind bars. It appears Betty never remarried. She died in 
The scene was right out of a Halloween horror movie. A man who wore a big bad wolf mask took an axe to a pregnant woman and her unborn child on Halloween night, 1984. Oh my God. What? The body of Doreen Ray Hitchens and her, and her fetus were dismembered. Um, (laughs) we're going to have all the content warnings in the description. I mean, I know at this point we're, we're already through the episode, but, um, Blood covered the home, and investigators were greeted with one horror after another as they toured the house. Who savagely murdered Hitchens and why? Investigators raced against the clock to find the killer before the Halloween wolf masked murderer struck again. Investigators recalled the scene in the latest Halloween true crime special on Oxygen. And, okay, they're kind of revealing the, the show. Um, it was something that an adult would wear or an older teenager, an investigator said, referring to the Halloween wolf mask. Wasn't sure if it was just a Halloween prop put out there like the jack-o'-lanterns were or if it belonged to someone. Upon approach to the home, investigators found paramedics in the home performing CPR on Hitchens. Because so much blood covered the home, investigators were convinced the vicious murder was more than a single stab wound. The, victim's bo- ha- the victim had body parts missing, the investigator said, and gouges to the head not done by a knife. These were done by a heavy instrument. Yikes. That's when detectives noticed a man pacing outside the house covered in blood and noticeably b- distraught. That's when you notice... <laughs> oh my god, what? That's when you notice a man outside covered in blood? He wasn't there when y'all pulled up? <sighs> I am confused. I'm very confused. Y'all not doing y'all's job. Ever. <laughs> They quickly identified identified the man as the victim's husband, Charles Herbert. Um, the Halloween double murder rocked the community. Was a serial killer on the loose and could he strike again? Investigators looked into Herbert as a suspect, but they also talked to Hitchens' ex-husband, Michael Dennis. Dennis and Hitchens endured a bitter divorce and custody battle over their son, Paul. Hitchens retained custody of Paul and married Herbert. In 1980, four-year-old Paul, wow, Jesus. In 1980, four-year-old Paul fell into a swimming pool and drowned, unbeknownst to his mother. Dennis blamed his ex-wife for the death of his son and harbored a grudge. He even launched a wrongful death lawsuit against Herbert and Hitchens, but lost the case. Damn. Dennis's anger boiled over when Hitchens became pregnant. He believed that his ex-wife was fully responsible for their son's death and his mental health deteriorated over the years. This is deep. Hmm. Investigators had two suspects, Herbert and Dennis. Dennis had a motive to want his ex-wife dead, but Herbert was at the crime scene. They gathered clues at the scene, which included blood samples. Detectives also had the actual Halloween wolf mask found at the the murder scene. Police took Dennis into custody after noticing a significant gash on his hand, which he tried to cover with bandages. He claimed that he had cut his hand trying to carve a pumpkin. He denied that he killed his ex-wife. When authorities informed Mike of his wife's murder, he seemed nonplussed and invited them inside to discuss the case. Um, I think they mean his ex-wife's murder. Um, Investigators noticed a bandage on his right hand, which he claimed was from playing with a knife. Mike told them he had nothing to hide and agreed to let them do a search of his home. Investigators found blood throughout the house and on articles of clothing more than what would come from a single knife wound. I see all this gauze, all this blood, and I say, you're under arrest for murder. So I handcuffed him, Carl told Snapped. While conducting a sound, more thorough search of his home, police found a receipt from a hardware store and a label for a machete with an 18-inch blade. Not a machete. In his garage, they also found two handmade coffins. Ooh, what? 
one for Charles, another smaller one for Doreen, as well as body bags, weights, and a map of the San Francisco Bay. Oh, what the hell? His plan was to dump them in the Bay of San Mateo Bridge. Okay, y'all, hold on. His plan was to dump them in the Bay of San Mateo Bridge. Mike initially denied murdering his ex-wife, and despite the evidence at hand, it was not strong enough to hold him. He was released after 48 hours. Having a machete? Get a map of the bay? And handmade coffins and body bags? And weights? <laughs> so that they can sink? How is that not enough evidence? He was arrested again, however, on November 5th, 1984, after a state crime matched Mike's blood type to that found at the crime scene. Mike was charged with murder with special circumstances, according to the LA Times, making him eligible for the death penalty. Detectives were later able to trace the wolf mask found at the Herbert's home to one that Mike wore to a Halloween party the previous year. Wow. I talked to this girl, and she goes, last year we went to this party. He was dressed like as a big bad wolf. Crossing my fingers, I said, did anyone take pictures by any chance? And she goes, oh, yeah, the guy took tons of pictures. Mike went on trial in July of 1988, and he ultimately pleaded guilty to first-degree murder for the death of Doreen and to second-degree murder for the death of her unborn fetus. In September of 1999, he was sentenced to die in the gas chamber. Gas chamber is intense. I know those still existed. I guess this is 99, but still. Today, Charles and Deanna Scott say that for their own peace of mind, they have forgiven Mike. Mm-hmm. I want him to know we survived and we're making it. He hasn't conquered us, Erdberg said in a 2016 interview with the Lake County Record Beep. Like many of California's death penalty convictions, Mike is currently sitting on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Damn. If something ever happens to me, I don't want y'all to ever know peace again. Mm. Stay mad. Don't forgive no fucking body and run up if you can. Uh, uh, like, uh, like we ever would. Like, like I don't, I mean, I don't understand it. You know, that is wild. Mm-hmm. Especially this man is still alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and it's kind of like how we're talking about with hammers. I don't know. Like, there's murder, and then there's murdering somebody with a hammer. There's murdering somebody with an axe. And then dismembering them, like, that's... Knowing she was pregnant? That's a different crime. Like, that's a different motivation. People kill out of crime of passion and self-defense all the time. And then you took it to a whole other level and just like, yeah, let me cut off limbs. Like, that's a whole other... Then we that's need a name fine. for that. There's got to be, like... In a perfect world, like services or something that, like, parents of young kids or kids that have died, like, can have access to. Because yeah. I'm like, I obviously do not ever want to murder anybody with a machete, but I'm like, what would my mental state be if I lost my child mm-hmm. and like I wasn't there? And mm-hmm. you fully blamed yourself. And you really, really think that they are the reason that that child died. Yeah. Like, I'm like, what would I be like? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's inexcusable, but I'm like, I'm sure he was just in, not in his right mind, clearly. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel, I don't know, I feel like if it had happened to me, I definitely would be like, well, why wasn't the pool covered? Where were you? Like, right. I would definitely yeah. have questions. And I feel like there's bound to be some resentment there because it's a child. And there's just so much that a child has to do to even get out of the house like oh, you know for me it wouldn't just be a little bit of resentment it would absolutely be vitriol it yeah. would be on site like yeah. i wouldn't want to violently murder you but i'm whooping your ass 
podcast every time I see him. Like, did you hear <laughs> that, that the interview on the radio where somebody called him and was like, this man caused my mother, this man caused my mother to die because she was immunocompromised. It was her boyfriend. And he went out and came home, got her sick, and she ended up dying. And he said, every time he has a bad day, he goes and finds that man and beats his ass. And that would be me. Like, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> like, yeah. He said he put him in the hospital before. And I, I, I think he's right. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Because <laughs> I feel like it's just so many stuff. I mean, I don't have that type of access. And I, find, I struggle to connect to experiences where I don't have, I would never have access to things like that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way I would ever be able to have a pool in my backyard. That's just never going to happen. That's not true. So, well, I mean, I don't even think I would want to. Like, uh, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's fair yeah. the, the amount of money, I don't know. Maybe it's way less expensive than I think it is. Mm-hmm. But for me, I just imagine like you you having to have like at least fifty to one hundred k to be able to build something like that. And I don't have access. I, to I that, think so. maybe it might be like when or if you did have access to that money, you're not going to spend it on a pool. Yeah. Like you're going to use it for something else. Yeah. Like I feel like that's probably, and then it will always be covered. Like yeah. always. Yeah. I mean, so. especially I, I know this was the nineties. So I don't know if like people thought about like handled children differently. Yeah. But now people talk about kids drowning in pools all the fucking time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't have like a gator on your pool or a cover on your pool or like extra locks on your door, what are you doing? Or the little turtle, some, um, the little turtle alarm. Some homeowners insurance won't insure your home if you don't have a fencer on your pool in some states. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 See, I don't, I don't fucking know that because I'm <laughs> <a> pool <laughs> in my backyard is so, it's so, I'm like, a pool one day. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, no, I, I love, I love that and I would definitely come over but I'm just like, I just can't can't picture that thing yeah. yeah and i also i mean this was a four-year-old but i i think it's like one of the most important things when you have kids to get them into swimming lessons like yeah. as soon as yeah. they can those like, little babies that baby, be thrown in the pool right and they just, just be floating on, on their back <laughs> like that's a safety thing that should be required as a yeah, parent absolutely. and it should be paid for by the government yeah no i support that yeah <laughs> You said what? <laughs> Everything should be paid for by the government. That's true. It is our tax dollars. So it's like us paying for it anyway. I'm tired of going to work. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Just to buy food. Like, uh-huh. I'm not even working for like luxuries. I'm working for right. like rent. The fuck? Boom. Yeah. This shit is ghetto. This shit is the, the trailer park. <laughs> so. Well, that was the Halloween app. Yeah. Y'all be safe this Halloween. Please. I'm going to be in the streets. I think everybody is going to be at home. I'm going to be in the house. I love that for you. <laughs> uh, we should post your Halloween costumes on our Instagram. Yeah. Or repost yes. whatever you post on your Insta. Carter has some fun Halloween costumes planned. I do. Mm-hmm. That's going to be cute. I'll definitely make sure I share them with you all. Yeah. Well, um, let us know what you thought of this episode and share any other Halloween stories you have with us. You can find us online at Iana Killer Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, and Iana Killer Pod on Twitter. And you can listen to us on Apple Music. You can listen to us on Spotify. Anywhere where you can find podcasts except for Facebook because they suck. Leave us a review, y'all. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.